Well, babe, we did it. We wrote a book. Yeah, man, it's it's actually surreal to even think about uh, that we wrote a book, had a baby, got married, not necessarily in that order. <laughs> <laughs> but the book is now available yeah. for pre-order, and we're so excited to share it with you. Oh, so looking forward to getting this book into your hands, to be in dialogue and conversation with all of you as we continue to liberate love from old imprints and codependent dynamics that keep us small, stuck, and stagnant. Yeah, you know, no matter your relationship status, this book walks you through what shaped you, why do you do what you do in relationship. It dives deep into your relationship blueprint, attachment styles, and most importantly, which is different than every other book that's ever covered codependency in the past, we explore the role of the nervous system in that. And the book is called Liberated Love. Yeah. Release your codependent patterns and create the love you desire. Go to createthelove.com slash liberated love to order your copy now. That's createthelove.com slash liberated love and get that pre-order in and you'll be able to get a free download of a meditation we created and a workbook that goes along with it. Much love and appreciation for your support. Much love. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. Get in, loser! Mean Girls is now streaming on Paramount+. Plus. Join Katie Heron as she meets the plastics and Tina Fey's new twist on the modern classic. Get ready for more of the rumors, backstabbing, and jokes you loved from the original movie with some fetch surprises. Rated PG-13. Wear pink and head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Attachment means to belong to somebody, to attach to somebody for the sake of being taken care of or to take care of the other so that one is attached to one's adult partner for the sake of being taken care of them and also being taken care of when I'm when I need that, but also taking care of the other. Welcome to another episode of the Mark Groves podcast. Today, I am blessed to be accompanied by Dr. Gabor Mate. Welcome. Nice to be with you. Thank you. I have to say this is a very exciting moment for me because I've had the honor of, I went to the Psych Networker, saw you give a keynote there, attended your workshops there. I've been, you know, having formerly lived in Vancouver, have been a longtime fan of the work that you've been doing. So I'm very excited to have you here today. Well, thank you. And your new book, The the Myth of Normal, which, I mean, I, I don't, I, to me, I think it's probably the best book that's come into my life in some years, because I think you've uh, done this beautiful job of explaining the connection to emotion, relationship and health and the impact that it has. And I'm curious what led you to writing this and and what has the journey been like yeah so medical practice teaches you certain things if your eyes are open if your ears are poised you know and what you learn is that human beings are whole beings they're not just collections of organs and furthermore human beings don't develop live or die simply as discrete separate entities what we're part of a whole network of other beings that includes the entire culture that we live in so that when you know not to mention all of nature but the point is that when people get sick um as a physician you're not just looking at some random misfortune in a certain organ you're looking at the life of a human being in a certain context and so now nobody teaches you that in medical school even though there's all kinds of science to show that human beings are what is called biopsychosocial creatures, which means that our biology is inseparable from our emotional lives, our psychology, 
and from our social relationships. And so in previous books, I had explored the mind-body unity. And when the body says no, I looked at a condition I was diagnosed with, uh, ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder, which I found wasn't an inherited disease or a disease at all, but actually a response to stresses in the environment of children. Uh, I've looked at parenting issues, and I've looked at addiction because I worked for 12 years with North America's most notoriously concentrated area of drug use here in the east, downtown east side of Vancouver, British Columbia. So I've looked at these issues, but I had not looked at is the development of all these issues in the context of the entire culture. So in this book, I wanted to bring together all that I had learned and all that science teaches about the mind-body unity, the relationship of emotions expressed or not expressed, felt or repressed to physical illness, the impact of trauma on mental health conditions, and the social conditions and connections that are the context for all that. So this book brings together everything I've ever learned, you might say. Yeah, and speaking, you know, at the beginning of the book, you talk about normal, like the idea of normality and and in medicine, trying to get people back to a state of normality. Can you maybe extend a little bit upon that? Sure. So... In medicine, when we say something is normal, we mean that it's healthy and natural. Now, normal isn't ever just a single point. It's a range. So within a certain range, your blood pressure is normal, which means that it's healthy and natural. Outside of that range, you can't live. Within a certain range of blood acidity, you can live and thrive, outside of which your life and health are threatened. So normal equates to healthy and natural. But in society, we use the word normal to refer to anything that we're used to. For example, at a certain point, it was very normal for parents to spank their kids. That's They were taught to do that. Many parents still do. But it's not healthy nor natural. In indigenous cultures, in, in, in the cultures in which we first evolved, in small band hunter-gatherer groups, they didn't hit their kids. They did not. That's not how we evolved. And spanking kids, we now know from a lot of research, can be as traumatic as more severe forms of abuse. And this is in the hands of perfectly well-meaning, loving parents. So it's considered to be normal. But is it healthy or natural? No, it isn't. And what I'm saying is there's a lot of practices to do with parenting, with schooling, with, with the economy and politics, with cultural interactions that are the norm in the sense that that's what we're used to but they're not only not healthy or natural, they're actually toxic. So that's why the subtitle of the book, Trauma, Illness, and Healing in a Toxic Culture, I think many things about our culture that we take to take for granted, that we think are normal, are neither healthy or natural, and they're responsible for a lot of dysfunction, a lot of illness of mind and body. Why is it that you think that, I mean, we've gotten to this place where toxicity is sort of a a normality, even that conversation that you said about how we responded to disciplined children. I know in the book you talk about how we were told that babies should just be let to cry. And, you know, when it comes from the state of, I mean, I was in the pharmaceutical industry for 14 years and in the journey of sort of waking up to emotionality and relationships and the inflammatory cost of relationships, I started to see that I was working for an industry that was very much, not always, but a lot of the time treating symptoms rather than getting to the core of things. And I'm, you know, when it's coming from 
the authority of medicine, much like pediatrics and how we're supposed to raise kids, it seems like there's maybe an absence of criticism of these things. And I've, I love that you're voicing it because, you know, how can we not imagine that leaving a baby to cry because it's considered a, I think the words you used were like a tyrant, you know, that's, I think, from the research. Well, I didn't use that word. What, what the, the Dr. Spock, Benjamin Spock, who um, for years was the authority, the guru on parenting for many decades, he actually said, he talked about the chronic resistance to sleep of the infant, and he talked about the tyranny of the infant, the infant who wanted to be picked up by the, by the parents. Now, I have to confess, as a physician, until I learned better, I would give the same advice to parents. I'd say to them, you want to learn, teach your kids how to sleep through the night? Don't pick them up when they're crying. It works. The kid goes back to sleep because they give up. They give up. But the message they get is that the emotions don't matter and that people don't care about how they feel. That's the message that they actually download. And that really is, has a traumatic impact on them. In modern culture, where parents have to rush off to work in the morning, which itself already is a big departure from the hunter-gatherer tribe where the kids with their parents the whole day and where kids were not left to cry. They were always picked up. I mean, the papoose in indigenous culture in North America, they, the way that African mothers bundle their kids, the way that gorillas and other apes hold their infants, you know, that's what's natural and healthy. It's necessary for healthy human development. But in this culture, it's very normal and, and it's reinforced by authority figures like myself. You know, I delivered a lot of babies and I would sometimes give this advice, not realizing the impact on the child. So um, the problem with medicine is it's not psychologically informed. It, it, it's, a, it, it's a very mechanical. Modern medicine is a lot to its credit. I don't have to sing its praises because its achievements speak for themselves. They're amazing. But at the same time, modern medicine has lost understanding of human beings and human needs. So it's become a very mechanical, formula-driven process rather than responding to genuine human needs in so many conditions from autoimmune disease to cancer to, to child development. And when you talked about your work in the pharmaceutical industries, you're quite right. When it comes to, say, like something like depression, I mean, there's like, I don't know, how many million antidepressants there are out there? Because there's always money to be, I'm exaggerating, but there's many, many. Yeah. There's always money to be made by coming up with a new variant of an antidepressant to deal with the symptoms of depression. But when you actually look at the basis of depression in people's lives and the traumas, there's no money to be made for a pharmaceutical company and getting at sources of causes. You can't through pills. So the research that doctors are given is driven by the profit motive of pharmaceutical companies. That's not a pejorative, it's just how it works under a capitalist system. But it means that the research that doctors get has got nothing to do with dealing with causes, for the most part, especially not conditions of the mind or autoimmune diseases. You know, we're actually mitigating symptoms, not a bad thing in itself, but it doesn't deal with the underlying problem. Well, and, you know, before we get into the conversation about autoimmune and, you know, the one of my favorite sayings that I read before the book that I heard from you was about that competition between authenticity and, and attachment. And you know, I'm curious if we could speak to that. And also, I really love the story that you sort of set the book up with about your experience of flying into the beautiful Vancouver. And I just think that did such a wonderful job of correlating early 
childhood. And of course, that's why it opened the, the book. But yeah, I mean, we could start there and then weave our way. Well, I, I wrote the book, The Myth of Normal, um, not just wanted to write from a position of sort of medical expertise, but also as a human being who's been through just about everything that I talk about in the book to one degree or another. You know, so that there's a commonality to all of us. I think trauma means a wound. I think a lot of us in this culture are wounded, some more dramatically and to a great extent than others, but almost everybody to one degree or another. And I didn't want to take myself out of that mix. The example I give is being very disappointed and hurt one day, not that long ago, when my wife doesn't show up at the airport to pick me up from a flight from a speaking trip. And I react like an abandoned infant with rage and withdrawal and i was an abandoned infant because when i was 11 months old my mother handed me to an unknown person she didn't know in the street of budapest to save my life because there's jews living under the nazis where we were living it was um, intolerable for me i couldn't have lived more than a few more days in that environment and so she sent me away as an infant i could only experience that as an abandonment just as in the United States, 25% of women have to go back to work within two weeks of birth. It's wild. Which means those infants are experiencing an abandonment, not because the mother wants to, but because social conditions are forcing them to. And so that abandonment then shows up when my partner of, by that time, close to 50 years, she doesn't show up at the airport. And in me, this wound, which is what the word trauma means, the wound, this wound gets triggered and all of a sudden, I'm reacting like an abandoned baby, not like a 72-year-old mature best-selling author and physician, you know, a dealer. So the adult me disappears in a flash and what shows up is the hurt baby. So, which, you know, sometimes when people say to you, don't be such a baby, they're saying that critically, but, but, but it's also accurate. So very often our reactions are those of our much younger selves based on trauma that we hadn't resolved yet. So that's my story there. And, and and almost everybody can recognize in themselves when they react so strongly to something later on, they think about, about what was that about? It's not about what happened in the present. It's about the, some old stuff that there hasn't been, it's some, some old traumatic wound that hadn't been healed yet. Well, in the context of it showing up in our adult life, and you know, I remember hearing a saying that if it's hysterical, it's historical. And I think that gives us some context to like our response being, you know, greater than what maybe the circumstances dictate. You talk about trauma being something that happens inside of you due to something that happened outside of you. Is that correct? Did I get that right? Yeah. So something happens to you. And then as a result of that, something happens within you. My mother gives me to a stranger. That's what happened to me. But that's not the wound. That's the wounding event. That's the traumatic event. The wound is, I conclude that I'm being abandoned. And who gets abandoned? Somebody who's not worthy to be kept. Somebody who's not lovable. So the wound is my sense of abandonment. The wound is my sense of not being worthy, not being good enough. And that those will show up in powerful ways in how I go through the world as an adult later on. So that's where, it's not what happened to me. If my mother could could have given me to a stranger, and if I had been capable, which of course I couldn't possibly have been, of understanding, oh, this is to save my life, my mother loves me very much, and this is her desperate attempt to ensure my existence when she couldn't ensure her own, I wouldn't have been traumatized. 
I would have been disappointed, hurt. Maybe I, you know, I would have missed her, but I would not have been traumatized. I would not have developed a wound of believing that I wasn't lovable. So trauma then is what happens inside of us. Now, interesting, you mentioned the word hysterical. You know where that comes from? Yeah, hysteria, right? Which is correlated to women. Hysterectomy is the removal of the uterus. So they used to believe that women um, who are quote unquote neurotic, their uterus is kind of wandering around. <laughs> Basically, it's a, it's a pejorative against women because you know what it ignores? It ignores the fact that women are traumatized more than men are as children. And so Freud, who did, was the first psychoanalyst, um, when he first saw clients, they told him that what happened to them was that they'd been sexually abused and he believed them for a while. And then in polite Viennese late 19th century society, he couldn't maintain that and still be a respectable doctor. So instead he said that they fantasized having been, because they wanted to have sex with their father, they're fantasized having sex with their father. In other words, they were hysterical. It is it, it, basically the word hysterical is the put down from, of women, which comes from the word uterus. And the, the actual result is, is that women who are abused are at, at, at much higher rates as children, sexually abused, you know? And uh, we know the physiological impacts when women are physically, sexually, when anybody is sexually abused, the men who are sexually abused, they have tripled the rate of heart attacks. Really, a recent Danish study that the more this week actually that the more adversity in childhood, the greater risk of heart disease, regardless of gender. Women who are sexually abused are at much higher risk for endometriosis and ovarian cancer. The word hysterical kind of trivializes the genuine experience of having been traumatized. Yeah, that makes sense. Thank you for explaining that. Does Monday at the office feel like a storm? Not with Microsoft Copilot. That feeling when Copilot gets everyone up to speed instantly? It's sunny again. When Copilot simplifies complex data so your teams can act, that sun's shining on a beach. And when Copilot uncovers hidden insights, you're on that beach with your people and you find buried treasure. That's Microsoft Copilot. Learn more at Microsoft.com slash AI for all. I guess even the use of the word or the word's existence itself shows you how much we minimize the emotional experience or the traumatic experience. We even like give a word that minimizes the traumatic experience and dismisses it completely. Yeah. And then this is true for uh, like uh, on men and women as well. So on the one hand, the word trauma is somewhat overused in the popular culture. People, you know, will talk about, I want to go on a picnic and it rained and I was traumatized. No, no, you weren't. You were just disappointed. You know, it's not the same thing. Uh, as Peter Levine, the great trauma psychologist says, every traumatic event is stressful, but not every stressful event is traumatic. So on the one hand, we overuse the word. But on the other hand, where it matters, where it matters in medical practice, the average medical physician does not get a single lecture on trauma and its relationship to mental and physical health. Not a single lecture. They shouldn't have a lecture. They should have a four-year course on it because everything they deal with in mental health and many years of physical health are based on childhood trauma, documentably, according to the scientific evidence. But they never presented that evidence. So on the one hand, we may overuse the word, but on the other hand, we don't understand it nearly and use it appropriately, nearly enough. You know, when I was a rep, I sold a product for irritable bowel syndrome. And I was 
I remember there was a study correlating sexual abuse to irritable bowel, but it was not spoken of. Like, I remember when a specialist would present on that, it was sort of scoffed that they even mentioned it. And, you know, as you're saying that, it's like, how much of our inflammatory or disease response if we actually did teach on trauma? So I'm curious of, one, what is the general fear of, like, that you talk about psychoneuroimmunology in the book? Like, what is the general fear of connecting the psycho or the psychological to the somatic, to the disease or hypertension or, or as you said, cardiovascular disease, all these things. Like it seems to me, it seems so rational. Like it's, it's not even a leap. It's like, well, that's the core. Like, why don't we get to the core? What is the fear or the general adversity that even general medicine or medicine in general has for that? Yes. So what you said about irritable bowel syndrome is actually correct. There's a lot of research, the research that shows that the more traumatization a person develops, particularly women, but not only, um, the greater their risk for irritable bowel syndrome for the very simple reason that trauma disorganizes the nervous system. So the autonomic, the vagus nerve, which controls bowel contractions and so on, is not regulated because the person's emotions are in turmoil. So IBS is not the only gastrointestinal condition that's trauma-related, but it's a major one for which there's significant research proof. Yet you go to a gastroenterologist with IBS, nobody's going to ask you about trauma. It's like it didn't exist. I remember this. You know, so why not? So, you know, here's a pill, you know, so why not? Well, first of all, the Western mind for a long time has separated the mind from the body. And this goes back to ancient times. So already 2,400 years ago, Socrates, the Greek philosopher, criticized the doctors of his day for separating the mind from the body. So this has been going on for a long time. With the, with the advent, uh, advent of modern science, modern industrialism, where Western science and scientific thinking and left brain thinking garnered or achieved such amazing heights of knowledge and technique and capacity, the separation has only got worse. So that's the first point. And physicians, People think that medicine is a science. Well, yeah, it's got a lot of scientific aspects, but it's also an ideology. And the nature of any ideology is it's got its blind spots, and it doesn't know what it doesn't know. So the medical ideology doesn't know that it separates mind from the body. They don't see it, number one. Number two, this I could go on, but another big reason is that physicians are very traumatized people. They have a high rate of suicide, high rate of burnout. It's a, it's a very stressful profession and medical training for a lot of people, and they'll talk about it, and doctors have written about this at length, is often high trauma, highly traumatic. Furthermore, the people that go into medicine, you know, you, you, you're sleep deprived, you're subjected to authority and leaders, you're shamed, you're ridiculed for what you don't know when you have no way of knowing it. You are um, given a special jargon that nobody else can understand, and you're competing. You're always anxious about your level of achievement, that's a highly traumatizing situation, especially for people who, like me, enter the profession already traumatized. Because who would put themselves through all that? <laughs> that's a good point. I would have done anything to get through medical school. So I put up with humiliation. And I put up with overwork. I'm traumatized to begin with because I have to prove that I'm important. And if you want to prove you're important, for God's sake, go to medical school. Now you're going to be very important. Why do I have to prove it? Because in infancy, I got this sense that I wasn't. You know, so not, I'll put up through anything. I won't look at my own trauma. In medicine, if you cry, if you're upset because bad things happen under your watch, you can't help it. You're a wimp. You're supposed to suck it up. 
and not have emotions around it. And these people then go out, and then they're not given all this science that shows the relationship of mind and body, of human being into relationships. It doesn't show the importance of relationships as regulators of other people's physiology and, and, and mind functioning. You don't give an, you traumatize yourself, you separate the mind from body, you're not given the scientific information to the contrary, and then you go out there as a high-priced, highly trained specialist who understands the physiological functioning of an organ, and that's what you understand, and not much else, and especially nothing about the human being as a whole. You're afraid of your own stuff, so the thought about trauma and pain threatens your own sense of self. Do you think part of that teaching that it is this being or like this physical thing that the physician is in charge of treating separates the idea of soul from body or those that they're not, uh, you know, that it's like a meat suit that they're in charge of fixing and it's not really taking into account the spirit that's within it? You know, spirit and soul, they're highly subjective concepts and everybody one might have a different sense, but certainly what medicine does not take into account is the innate nature-given healing capacity of the human organism. In certain situations, that not seeing that is fairly helpful. You know, like if if I went on for my bicycle ride this afternoon, which I will, and God forbid, I have an accident and break my femur. I don't want to go to somebody who is all into mind-body unity and, you know, you will heal, don't worry <laughs> I'm going to go to a mechanic who can put my bones together, you know, please. I don't care what you think about human beings or the human soul. Just put my bones together. So in some situations, that's very appropriate. But in chronic health conditions of mind and body, it's not appropriate. Because most chronic health conditions of mind and body have to do with that unity. When I, the doctor, make myself the expert on you, and I don't listen to your story, and I don't know your history, and I don't honor and know how to encourage the innate healing capacity that's within your organism, I'm doing you a disfavor and I'm making myself into something higher and you know more expert and you're sort of the passive recipient of my wisdom. Not good enough, you know, that's just not good enough. I wanted to return to something you said about trauma because that being at the core of it and that our culture itself is sort of normalized, like even that, Mothers in the United States go back to work after, or I'm, I'm sure in other parts too, after a couple of weeks. I'm, at what point does an experience become trauma? Like, you know that line you were saying, not every experience is traumatizing, but what is the line? You're right. Not every stressful experience is traumatizing. Every traumatizing experience is stressful, of course. So again, that goes back to my definition of trauma, which is not what happens to you, it's what happens inside you. So if something, if something happens to you, but you get support and you're understood and you're held emotionally, you might have emotional pain, you might have grief. If it doesn't leave you constricted and less capable and less alive and uh, less connected to yourself, then it's not traumatic. Painful, but not traumatic. But if the same thing happens, especially to children, but they're not understood, seen, held, validated, uh, their feelings are not regulated by nurturing adults, not controlled, regulated, it's a different word. Then they're going to sustain a wound. So the question is, were you wounded? Were you hurt emotionally, which happens to all of us? Or were you wounded in the sense that this wound will persist later on in a way that will limit you, that will constrict you? If the latter, then you're traumatized. If not, then you're not. Okay, that makes sense. Let's say two children, their father dies, age seven, when the child is seven or eight. That's potentially very traumatizing, 
but only if there's no support around. If the child can grieve, be held with their emotions, be supported, be understood for however long it takes for the grief circuits that are actually in our brain to work out the loss and come to terms with it. If they actually get it, yeah, I've lost this. It really hurts. <sighs> you know, then they won't be traumatized. But if the parent dies and the emotional atmosphere is not supportive, is not understanding, if the child can't express how they feel, there's nobody there to receive it. If people tell them to get over it, or if they don't talk about it, then, you know, then they're going to be traumatized. So it's not the external thing necessarily. It's it's sort of what happens internally based on what kind of support you get or you are deprived of. That's what creates the trauma or prevents it. This episode is brought to you by Paramount+. Plus. An unlikely friendship begins in the Paramount Plus original movie, Little Wing, starring Brooklyn Prince with Kelly Riley and Brian Cox. Reeling from her parents' divorce, Caitlin steals a valuable bird to save her home, but instead forms a bond with the owner, leading to a new outlook on life. Little Wing, now streaming exclusively on Paramount Plus. Head to ParamountPlus.com to try it free. Rated PG-13. Which shows you how important having community, a community that knows how to actually sit with emotions and process them and not deny them. Because, you know, in the book you talk about, you know, an emotion is not accepted. And maybe this is a beautiful bridge into that authenticity versus attachment, you know, and how important that is. And I, I think we we don't realize how much is inherited through the lack of capacity of our parents so or, or our culture or our community. Yeah. So again, human beings evolved in small band hunter-gatherer groups, but there's always a community around. And and most traditional cultures have some kind of a grieving ritual. You know, there's the Jewish shiva, there's the uh, keening that they do in Ireland, for example. The indigenous peoples have grieving rituals where they relate to the spirits of the departed and so on. You know, so these are culturally embedded in traditional cultures. Modern culture. We don't do such a good job. We actually don't talk about death very much. You know, death is kind of a forbidden subject. Now, when it comes to authenticity and attachment, which now I recall you asked mentioned earlier, so what I'm referring here to is an essential dynamic that characterizes this culture. So we have a need for attachment as human beings, and especially as young children. Attachment means to belong to somebody, to attach to somebody for the sake of being taken care of or to take care of the other so that you know, one is attached to one's adult partner for the sake of being taken care of them and also for the sake of taking care, being taken care of when I when I need that, but also taking care of the other, you know, and, and people need each other that way, both in personal and in social relationships. We're caring is a circuit that's embedded in our brain, you know, and we have it. So we share that with other mammals. Now, so the need for attachment, especially <clears throat> saliently for the young human infant is non-negotiable because without that attachment relationship where we're being taken care of, we don't survive. We can't. And that attachment relationship is not just to meet our physical needs. We have an emotional need to be picked up and to belong and to be heard and to be held and understood. That's, that's an essential need of the human being. So the attachment is essential 
for physical survival and any emotional psychological development. We have another need, which is it's kind of a word that's thrown about a bit too much these days in a new age sense, uh, authenticity. But authenticity in real life is very simple. Being in touch with yourself and being able to follow that guidance of your gut feelings. So why do we have that need? Well, again, we developed out there in nature for millions and hundreds of thousands of years until about 15,000 years ago, we all lived out in nature. How long do you survive? How long does any creature survive out in nature when they're not in touch with their gut feelings? Not very long. So that's the need to authenticity out of the self, to be in touch with ourselves. Perfect. But what happens in a society where parents are taught to teach kids not to express their feelings? For example, if you're angry, you're going to get a timeout. I don't want to be with you when you're angry. That means your attachment relationship with me on which your life depends is contingent on your pleasing me with your behavior. The child's going to go, not consciously, but, oh, I better go for the attachment and give up the authenticity. Or I, I, an example I, I, I give, sorry, in the book, The Metanormal, I give the example of Hillary Clinton this is the story that she told at the Democratic Convention in 2016 when she was nominated for the presidency by her party. And they had a video about her life, and she proudly tells the story of being four years old, running into her mother's home because she was afraid, because neighborhood kids were bullying her. And the mother says, there are, there's no room for cowards in this house. Now you get out there and deal with it. Now, fear is a natural human emotion. We have a circuit for it, a good thing, because it protects us. And one of the ways that the child seeks protection is to go to the adult. Now you tell a mother a gorilla or orangutan to ignore a distressed child who's being threatened. We tell our kids, suck it up, deal with it. Well, what's the outcome? 60 years later, she's a candidate and she gets pneumonia and she gets dehydrated. What does she do with that? doesn't tell anybody until she collapses in the street because she learned to suck it up and to deal with it on her own. Now, nobody would blame a presidential candidate for saying, you know what, people, I've been working hard. I overdid it perhaps, but for whatever reason, I got this pneumonia now. I'm going to take two days off campaigning. Nobody would charge her, judge her for it. Words, you know, people would actually validate and value the honesty, wouldn't they? But no, she's programmed to suck it up. That's the trauma. So, but, but the amazing thing, Mark, is that this video was seen by millions of people on television and, and written about in the newspapers. Nobody, nobody, nobody remarked on the fact that what they were witnessing here, nothing healthy or natural about it, what they were witnessing is the traumatization of a small child. That's how normal trauma is in our culture. And I'm not making a political point here. I'm not picking her between her and, and her opponent. They're both traumatized people in their own way. And I'm not talking politics here. I'm talking about how normalized trauma is in our culture. Yeah, that, that video itself goes viral, gets shared as being like, look at the resiliency of X, you know, just from the right. And isn't that so fascinating? Like in our culture, even in the individualism, in the in the space of like, crush it, work so hard. And I think of like, how hard is it in today's culture where most families or households have to have two jobs to be able to pay for things? 
how can they be attuned to children? Like it, it just feels like it's such, it's almost like you have to choose often between poverty or not even putting food on the table or paying rent or being attuned to children. Exactly. And so we know that stressed mothers can't be as attuned to children as they as much as they like to be. Not because they don't love their kids, because they can't. You know? And so then you have a phenomenon like Elon Musk buys Twitter for $44 billion. And the first thing he does, he throws 7,500 people out of work. The constant insecurity in this society that people have to live with. Um, a few days ago, a furniture factory in southern United States, I forget which state, fired 2,500 workers, closed their shop. Overnight, they did this when people were sleeping uh, two days before Thanksgiving. They said, don't even show up tomorrow morning. Don't even come to the plant until we let you come and get your belongings. You know, now that gives people a terrific loss of control, a sense of uncertainty and insecurity. And that has physiological effects on their bodies. We know that. And it's going to affect how they relate to their children because they're going to be irritable and upset. And this is taken for totally normal. It's perfectly normal. Just for some executive in, who knows, uh, Portugal or Brazil or New York or Silicon Valley to decide that ten thousands of miles away, thousands of people are going to be out of job just like that. And we think this is normal. It's the norm, but it's not natural and it's not healthy that people should have to live with such tremendous insecurity and loss of control. Well, and I'm curious, one, what is the impact of not having connection to things like fear or rage or any of those emotions that you're talking about that we often, and we might even have to trade joy for belonging, right? Like it could be any of these emotions. So I'm curious, one, what is the cost? And because I would imagine that one, I'm going to create an environment around me that requires that I maintain that suppression or uh, depression. And then I just think of like, older generations saying that kids today are not resilient. So like, where's the line between resiliency and I guess maybe self-abandonment, if that's the right term? So let's begin with what you said about anger and ask you sort of a simplistic question. Have you ever been angry? Yes. Okay. Now, what's the experience of anger like physically in your body? Like what's going on in your chest and your belly and your muscles and your face? What, 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 if you can tap into the physiological experience of anger, What's going on for you in that state? Yeah, it feels mobilizing. Like it feels like I'm going to move. I'm going to change. I'm going to, there, there's an eruption of sorts, I suppose. Yeah, there's, there's certainly probably tension. Yeah, constriction, tension. I feel powerful. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. And that's the role of healthy anger, by the way, is to make you powerful so you can protect your boundaries. Imagine how much effort it would take you not to feel that anger. It takes tremendous energy not to feel the anger. But if children get the message early that the anger is unacceptable, then for the sake of belonging, for the sake of the attachment, they're going to repress their anger. That means all their lives, all this energy is going into repressing anger. The physiological costs are enormous. In the book, we give the analogy of taking a beach ball and trying to push it underwater. 
you can keep it up for a while, but after that, after a while, it just gets too much work. People who repress their anger, they're doing that work all the time. They're not aware that they're doing it, but it has a huge impact because you can't separate the emotions from the physiology, according to modern science. Therefore, repressing anger takes a huge physiological toll on your nervous system, on your guts, on your immune system. And that's why these people are more likely to develop IBS and autoimmune disease and all kinds of other conditions. So the repression of anger, which begins as an attempt just to be accepted, once it becomes a pattern in your life, it really threatens your health. And it's very common in people. I'm talking about healthy anger now. I'm talking, and, and uh, that's very common in people with autoimmune disease. Why is it that 80% of people in this culture with autoimmune disease are women? Which gender is most acculturated into? You mustn't be angry. Yeah, so true. And by the way, the same with racism. James Baldwin, the great black American writer, said that to be a a black man or a black person in this society is to, is to live in a state of suppressed rage all the time. Because a black person who's angry is in a lot of danger in this culture. A woman who's in angry in this culture gets labeled all kinds of things, and she's in a lot of danger. So women are, and certain racial racialized minorities are programmed into repressing their anger. As a result, they have more disease. In that repression then, and, and I think of in the book, the message that I continue to get, and I recommend everyone needs to read this book because this book to me is like such a key to one understanding themselves and their relationships and their experience in life and their health. Because so much of, I don't have autoimmune, but I have lots of friends who do. I've worked with lots of people who do. And that much like when I was in the work with irritable bowel syndrome as a rep, I recognized that what physicians would often say about patients with IBS or fibromyalgia, and often those were sort of clustered together, was that these were type A hypochondriac people, and it was very dismissed. And what I saw and read a lot in your book, and, and just see in general too, is that that codependent, like people-pleasing behavior is so often correlated to autoimmune. And I'm, maybe you could talk, is that that suppression of anger, the amount of energy that goes into that, and then it makes us disassociated or dysregulated and so we're not able to perfuse blood to healing like is that part of sort of the pathology absolutely it is so uh, you know you have children do you have children no but i have one on the way you have one on the way okay yeah. great well uh congratulations first of all thank you and secondly you'll, you'll never meet a one-day-old baby that represses their emotions mm, so ever true. if they're hungry if they're angry upset you're going to hear about it so therefore, the repression of those emotions, there's nothing natural or healthy about it. Nature, through evolutionary process, gave us emotions as she did to other mammals for the sake of survival. So healthy anger is essential for survival. So healthy anger says, you're in my space, get out. That's essential for survival. And, and the one-day-old baby is not concerned with pleasing you. I, I guarantee it. Your one-year-old child, whatever gender... They're not going to lie there at night. Oh, I'm hungry and I'm wet and I'm uncomfortable. But poor mom and dad, they've been working so hard the whole day. I better not bother them right now. I guarantee you, that ain't going to happen. So how do people become people pleasers? When they learn that unless they please others, they will not be accepted. And being accepted, that attachment is actually essential. So people pleasers repress their own needs for the sake of meeting the needs of others which happens in a lot of families, and they repress their healthy anger. That means they don't set boundaries for themselves. They don't know how to say no. 
And not being able to set boundaries and not being able to say no is guaranteed to make you sick. And one of the previous books I've written is actually entitled When the Body Says No. Because when people don't know how to say it, the body will say it in the form of some kind of illness. If we can turn these patterns around, which people actually can, a lot of their conditions can heal. And I know all kinds of people with all kinds of you know, fibromyalgia or endometriosis or, or, or chronic fatigue or you know, autoimmune diseases, you know, who once they get it, that, 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 that their bodies are not separable from their emotions and the more they liberate their emotions, the less their body has to say no on their behalf, the healthier they get. I mentioned this in the book. I know a rheumatologist in California who, before I wrote this book, and I interviewed her for this book, and but she read my book When the Body Says No. And and she saw the same people pleasing that, that, that you noticed. And once she read When the Body Says No, she understood the links. So she started talking to people about their emotional lives and, you know, their stresses and their traumas. Now she gets amazing results and can can often get, I know people have been to her, they think she's wonderful, and she is. And she can often get people, or sometimes at least, can get people off their medications that they've been told they'd have to be on a life for a lifetime. But you know what she says? Don't use my name because my colleagues will reject me if I do. So in medicine, you're not allowed to speak about this stuff. You, you, you consider it crazy. You know, that, that's how bad it is. Isn't that how it always begins? You know, isn't that how the rebellion always begins too, is with the people who are called crazy and the willingness to, which I can totally understand from a professional. Again, that's that authenticity versus belonging, you know, our attachment is the perception of ourselves, which when it's correlated to survival, which I think it is, you know, for most people, or at least perceptually, you know, I, I think in our adult relationships, you know, you're talking about how we often wake up when the body says no, what are some of the other signs that we're being asked to like that, that it's about to come. And, you know, I often think of it like the first are just nudges and the second one are like cosmic two by fours. But then, you know, disease really is such an extreme thing to wait for. And we often wait there just because we don't know, because you said culture normalizes these things. So we actually think there's something wrong with us and nothing wrong with culture. So yeah, what are some other signs? Well, so um, we have a chapter called Before the Body Says No. So preventing this stuff. I mean, it's certainly true that when people get ill, for many people, it acts as a huge cosmic two by four is a great way to put it. It's a, it acts as a, way, a huge wake up call, but I don't recommend it. I don't recommend autoimmune disease or cancer. Well, depression, anxiety, dry mouth, um, irritability, poor sleep, fatigue, back spasm, stomach aches, frequent colds, recurrent tensions in your relationships that you don't understand but they keep happening. These are all signs that something unconscious is going on that you're not aware of that you better look at. And you can actually learn how to say no before the body has to say it for you. And we talk about how to do that. Um, you can also do a check with yourself once a week. What is my body telling me this week? How's my body feeling? Not just ignore it and push through it. If I'm tired, if I'm feeling discouraged, if I'm feeling depressed, if my sleep is not good, there's something going on. So you can learn to monitor yourself without waiting for the disasters to hit. But again, the ethic in this society is that we're all alone. Suck it up. You're on your own. Do you think in the context of that reclamation or starting to finally 
Because, you know, in the book, you talk about a lot of people who were told they wouldn't be able to heal or, you know, it was sort of prepare for death or get this intervention. And they chose to finally listen to their gut. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious if in your experience, because I think so much of the fear is if I start to speak up, my world's going to fall apart. Or if I start to express myself, my relationships are going to collapse or I'm, I'm going to have to get a new job or I'm going to have to do something. What is the cost of not doing it, though? You know, so I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Well, it's, it's exactly how you formulated it. It's a question of which cost would you rather pay? You know, so it's certainly true for some people that if they start getting authentic and really expressing themselves and, and, and connecting with their feelings, some people they're in relationship with may not like that because that's not what they signed up for. So it's the question of which pain, which pain would you rather have? The pain that your body or your mind will prepare for you if you're not authentic or the pain that you'll experience when some people might reject you, and they might. The difference is that as a child, when, when the authenticity versus attachment dynamic arose, you had no choice in the matter. As an adult, you do. Sometimes it's a question of which pain would I rather accept. So there was a study out of, I think it was out of Massachusetts. They looked at 2,000 women over a 10-year period. They found married women. They found that those women who were unhappily married and didn't express their feelings were four times as likely to die as those who were also unhappily married but did express their feelings. So it's a question of which cost would you rather pay? It's certainly true that if you're in a relationship and my wife was in such a relationship, you know, that I wanted her to be a certain way. And when she was not wanting to be that way, I would chafe and complain and so on. And she had a decision to make. And she made the decision quite some time ago that she'd rather be herself than be with me if it came down to that. Now, it so happened that on the whole, <laughs> as frustrating as it was for me sometimes, I'd rather be with her than without her, you know. So... The relationship was a major grunt for me to start waking up and growing up, you know, but it may be that some people in your life will not be ready for that, and then you have a decision to make. The real problem is, on a vast social scale, is cultural, economic, social, because some people have much less latitude to make those choices, because their very livelihood might depend on it. If you're on a low-paid job, not very well respected by the very reversed standards of this culture that values certain things and doesn't value others, which has nothing to do with humanity and everything to do with profit, you know. But you're not in a position to make these choices as freely as some of us are. But even then, at least you can recognize it and not buy into it and not buy into that there's something wrong with me. You might say to yourself, well, I have to put up with this for now but I'm not going to make it my own fault. I'm not going to buy into it. I'm not going to make myself lesser in my own mind than I am. Well, that'll go a long way. Even if you have to put up with a lousy job, don't take it personally. Don't don't make it about yourself. And in this culture, we're told that if you're low paid and you know, so on, there's something wrong with you. It's your fault. Not so, folks. It's very often determined by history, class, race, and all kinds of circumstances you had no control over. So at least don't take on the burden of believing that this is all your fault. I don't say to become a victim either. That doesn't help you very much. But don't buy into other people's view of you. Was your hope in writing the book that it would give some context to people in circumstances where their environment 
has them adopt beliefs that they're unworthy or not of value versus that the environment and the culture actually doesn't necessarily value people. It doesn't necessarily, which is really ironic to think that our culture doesn't value people, yet it is composed of people. Well, you already told me what my intention in writing the book was. And when you said that everyone needs to read this book, and then you talked about yourself, and then you said that this book will help you understand yourself. That was my intention. In writing this book, I want to give people a map to themselves and to their lives so they could understand their lives and themselves and other people with compassion and some depth of understanding. So that what you expressed there was my very intention in writing the book. Yeah, for me, it's one of the, you know, when I watched your keynote at the Psych Networker and it was on how to survive in a toxic culture, it must have been like the seeds before you start, because I think it was about four years ago that you gave that talk. I was already gestating the book and I collected a lot of information about it. But yeah, uh, it was more than seeds. It was a little sprout by then. Yeah, it was a beautiful talk. I loved it. And it was one of the first times that I'd heard the somatic, you know, the connection to the somatic and, and disease and the psychological link. And you recommended a book, Neurobiology and the Development of Human Morality at that talk. And I immediately bought it and I was blown away at the beginning of it. And it seems to me like this is such an edge of, of uh, merging these two things. Yet, as I said earlier, and as you've said, it's a natural link. Like it's a natural link to correlate trauma to our outcomes in life, but also our disease. And, um, you know, in the book, you and, and so I don't want to give it all away because I think this is a must read for everybody. But I'm curious, what are some of the solutions that you see? I mean, one individually sort of, I guess, reclaim or minimize, let's say minimize or turn our bodies into healthy places. But then how do we even confront a culture that is uh, fiscally benefiting the exploitation of this uh, toxicity or this self-abandonment. So let me first of all give a shout out to the person whose book you mentioned. Her name is Dr. Darcia Narvez, N-A-R-V-A-E-Z. She's a professor emerita at um, Notre Dame University. And the reason I mention her name is because first of all, she's interviewed and quoted in this book because she really studied human evolution and, and hunter-gatherer groups and how we've abandoned our humanity in modern civilization. She says that we've actually um, left behind our evolved nest. An evolved nest, by the way, is the title of her next book. The book you mentioned is a rather heavy academic read. It's not for the average person, although a lot of people would benefit from it. Certainly, I did. But her book, The Evolved Nest, which is a short book, which talks about the need for attachment that we share with other mammals. I wrote the foreword for it, so I can confidently tell you, it's just a beautiful gem of a book. And I hope many people will look out for it. It's called The Evolved Nest by Darcia Narvez. Now, in terms of answering the question about how to work with all this material, well, I mentioned the body saying no, where you didn't. So we teach an exercise in the book that you can do once a week. And people have told me it changed their lives. I mean, I, I've been teaching this exercise before I put it into the book. So I know the impact of it. Once a week, sit down with yourself and ask, where this week did I not say no? What I mean by that is, where there's a no that wanted to be said, but you didn't utter it because you're too worried about pleasing somebody or you're afraid of what they would think of you or whatever. You didn't say no. So where this week didn't I say no? This is a written exercise. Secondly, what's the impact of me of not saying no? Well, irritability, fatigue, shame, 
um, whatever. Number three, what did I believe, consciously or unconsciously, that kept me from saying no? Oh, if I say no, I'm a bad person. If I say no, I'm not a good friend. If I say no, they won't like me. If I say no, they're going to reject me. If I say no, they think I'm weak. Strong people don't say no. That's the belief. Where did you learn that belief? Well, guess where you learned it? You learned it sometime before, between the day of age one, day old, and that you were five years old. That's where you learned it, or six, seven years old. And then, who would you be if you knew how to say no? When I say no, I mean when there's a no that wants to be said and you weren't afraid to say it, who would you be? And then finally, where is it in your life that you're not saying yes? Something that really turns you, moves you, calls you, that you're passionate about, but you're not expressing it, you're not following it because you didn't leave yourself enough space because you didn't say no to all these other things. You do that little exercise once a week, it's going to change your life. Now, there's a whole chapter on it in the book, and I'm not worried about giving it away. But in other words, you really look at your dynamics, not judgmentally. You don't say to yourself, oh, what an idiot, I didn't say no. No, you didn't say no. There was a powerful reason for it. The reason is you learned that it's dangerous to do so. So now you have to unlearn that. So be compassionate with yourself, but take responsibility. And how about turning towards the face of a culture? Like the, how do we even begin to confront the idea of them like that's a lot of momentum to look at and say i'm going to try to change this and how do we actually even hold on to this individual transformation with this sense of hope you know because i know if all, enough of us do it which you know is of course uh, the desire of reading a book like yours and and writing one i'm sure is how yeah how do we begin to face that momentum you mean on a large social level is that what you mean yeah like i kind of look at everything and go fuck it feels insurmountable sometimes well the the culture uh, which is driven by a certain economic imperative has got a lot of momentum behind it and a lot of structures designed to keep things exactly the way they are so that's true and and so and that's built into the educational system the legal system certainly the medical system it's a lot to confront. What I do find, though, is that the more people get in touch with their authentic selves, the more they find ways of working in despite the way the culture of existing or being and, and, and joining others and agency, despite what the culture um, would have them do. So I do think that that's the first point. The second point is I, I make some very basic suggestions which I don't expect to be adopted overnight, but they're very straightforward. What if we trauma-informed all the teachers? What if the teachers learned that these kids who are so-called misbehaving and so-called acting out are actually portraying their emotional pain and their sense of disconnection and their sense of confusion so that we didn't put the emphasis on behavior, but we put it on human development? What would that do? It's not, it's not cost intensive and it's not inconceivable. It does take a shift of perspective. What if physicians learned all the science that I've been barely touching upon in this conversation of the mind-body unity, of the inseparability of the emotional mind and the individual mind from the minds of others and therefore of the impact of the culture on the biology of human beings. A lot of students actually learned that science, and that science exists 
in volumes and it's not in itself even controversial it's just that doctors don't get any exposure to it so what if we informed trauma and mind-body education into medical schools where it's largely lacking right now what if in the legal system where it's basically designed to punish people we call it a correctional system but it doesn't correct anything for the most part it makes things worse what if we actually learned that people who do, even people who do terrible things, and, and this is not about lo letting loose people on society who are dangerous, but I can tell you that even people who've done terrible things, once they're treated with some compassion and they gain some understanding about themselves, they transform. And I've seen that personally, and other people have seen it personally, and I've written about it. What if we under introduced basic education about human beings into medicine, into education, into the law? We'd have a different society. Now, how to make that happen? I have no idea, except to keep talking about it, to keep advocating for it, which I think everybody who wakes up, and you know what? This is expression in our society these days, woke, which is a put down. Since when is it a bad thing to wake up? In what kind of culture does it become a pejorative that somebody has woken up? You know, the Buddha, there's a famous story about the Buddha once when he was walking along some path in the forest or in the field and looking radiant and present and grounded and the stranger looks at him and says, what are you, a god? And the Buddha says, no, I'm awake. Now, in what kind of a culture does it become a pejorative that somebody should be, should be awake, which means that you see things in reality instead of in dreams? And James Baldwin, whom I quote in the last chapter, again, the great American writer, he said that in this society, Words are used more to cover the sleeper than to wake him up. But what if we used words gently to wake each other up rather than to put each other and ourselves to sleep? Well, to think that our response to our environment is actually an invitation to wake up to our environment, to call it out, to stand up, to speak up. You know, to recognize, too, that awakening or expression or authenticity is extremely attractive because it is sort of a, I think, a very unconscious and conscious desire of all of ours. And it's contagious. And in its contagion, that could be, you know, the thing that transforms our culture, as you were saying. And um, the great uh, German poet, Rainer Maria Rilke, has got a wonderful quote that I cite all the time. Everything in nature grows and struggles in its own way, establishing its own identity, insisting on it at all cost against all resistance. So he's saying that everything in nature wants to be themselves, whether it's a plant, an animal, or an elephant, or a human being. We all just want to be our, 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 our true nature, the way we evolved and, and, and that, that, that remains authentic. The struggle for authenticity is not only so that we can change society or the culture, but it's also simply that we can be ourselves. You know, you've probably had the experience I've had of being in a situation, especially when I was younger, not so much anymore. In fact, thank God, hardly ever now. Where I'm in a situation and later when I say, hmm, I wasn't being myself. And that doesn't feel good. And rather than judging myself for not having been myself, I can say, well, what was I afraid of? What was holding me back? That's a useful inquiry. But I think that struggle to be ourselves, I think that's just essential to our humanity. Well, I think to wake up to just the reality and accept it that we are not being ourselves or expressing ourselves is such a powerful first step. And then, you know, that exercise that you're talking about where we do this audit on ourselves and our week and our behaviors, 
we can begin to reclaim and and see the edges of self-abandonment, you know, and because I think often about at some point it was evolutionary, evolutionarily beneficial to have some level of self-abandonment or compromise for the maintenance of a tribe and and collectivism. No, I would I would I would disagree with you. Okay, I'm curious about that. Yeah, I was going to ask you what you thought. Because survival actually depended on being connected with the tribe. So it wouldn't have been at the cost of individuation. No, no, that's true. That if you look at traditional cultures, there's not much individuation. People are very comfortable in themselves, but in the modern sense, there's not much individuation. That's true. No, no, I agree with you. I'll take back my disagreement. But it wasn't the self-suppression. It wasn't repression. It's not the same thing. There's no autoimmune illness in traditional societies. Yeah, and I wonder if that's because there was sort of a harmony within the group that didn't require like and dissent was seen as expansive rather than compromising to the group. And the chiefs, when you look at traditional cultures, the chiefs weren't like all powerful rulers. They had a certain function. Like in indigenous culture, the war, the, the war chiefs might lead the troops into battle, but they didn't control other people's lives. You mentioned harmony. And so there's a very famous book, the title of which is 12 Rules for Life um, Beyond Chaos, you know? And so this person who wrote the book thinks that the opposite of chaos is a whole bunch of rules. No, it isn't. The opposite of chaos is harmony, love and harmony. That's the opposite of, of, of chaos. And it's when we're afraid that we have to set these rules because we don't have the internal harmony with our environment. You know, St. Augustine said, love and do what you will. So if there's love there, if there's harmony there, you don't have to worry about rules. You're just going to do the right thing, you know? So the issue is not to set a bunch of rules that we have to follow, but how do we develop harmony between ourselves and, our, and the environment? And that includes other people. It also includes, of course, the natural environment. And look at what we've done, how out of harmony this culture has become to the point, as Darcy and Arvis points out, we're the only species, we've become species atypical. We're the only species that creates conditions that destroy its own necessities. That's incredible. That's how toxic we've become. It seems like that's the, like you said, control versus harmony. It seems like that's the overt masculinization versus the rejection of sort of the feminine and the way that we've, as you said, the the manifestation and experience of disease more so in women. You know, it seems like just, and the way we treat the earth, again, you know, seen as the feminine. Yeah, and, and, and actually, you know what, you're absolutely right, and what we're really talking about is on a certain level, is that is the domination of the left brain over the right brain. The left brain being the more holistic, sees the whole picture, sees the connections. The right brain is just linear and, you know, they're both necessary. But when the do one dominates the other, we've got a problem. And that's what's happened in our culture. And, and you know, on, on the human level, you see what's been called toxic masculinity, where all the so-called masculine qualities of control and force and aggression are celebrated and the softer feminine so-called feminine qualities of understanding and acceptance and harmony they're rejected we need is a balance between the two sides of our brains and the two aspects of our natures well your book is certainly an invitation into that and your work has been for me since i discovered it you know years and years ago um dr gabor mate Thank you 
so much for your time, your wisdom, the work that you do in the world. And I really appreciate having you on. It's, it's honestly, it's like one of those moments you dream about when I saw you speaking and now I get to meet it. So thank you for, for being here. Well, thanks for giving me a platform where I can talk about what I love talking about. So it's a real pleasure for me and it's nice to meet you as well. Ah, such an honor. And I'm curious for the people listening, uh, where can they find more about you, your work, and, and we'll make sure we link it in the show notes. I don't handle social media and don't know anything about it, but I do have, I do have an Instagram handle. I can't even tell you. I think it's Gabo Mate MD. Uh, yeah, that's right. It is. It's run by my daughter and I think we're coming close to 900,000 followers, whatever that, that means. So there you can follow me on Instagram. Um, also I have a website, drgabomate.com or all my talks and, you know, events and books and, you know, all kinds of other stuff are mentioned. It's almost impossible not to find me on YouTube. Just put my name into YouTube and people have downloaded, um, dozens of talks of mine uh, i didn't but they did and it's on there it doesn't cost you a cent just put my name into youtube and all kinds of talks on this subject the myth of normal on adhd on addictions on mind and body health on child development it's impossible not to find me uh, on youtube if you want to find me i have programs there's an organization called wholehearted.org who filmed me doing a program on trauma it's really great program i can tell you it's beautifully filmed another one on addiction so check out wholehearted.org i teach a course called compassionate inquiry for practitioners we've had about three thousand students in 80 countries in the last three years you can look that up compassionate inquiry also has a short course which is for lay people it's not as demanding much less expensive not interactive but it's still very deep you can look for the compassion card short course. The problem is that the older you get, if you ask me where you can look up my work, the longer the list gets. And I'm not too comfortable about shilling my own work, but at the same time, I'm proud of it. So there's all these things out there, people. If you want to find out more, you'll find it. The five books that I've written, including the one we've been talking about. Ah, everybody pick up the books. Incredible. Um, your work on addiction, world changing as well, P paradigm shifting in terms of the perspective on it and um, and ADHD. And so uh, thank you again for everything, for your time and, and for what you do. Okay, thanks a lot. Take care. Thanks so much for tuning in to today's episode. If this episode resonated with you, one of the best ways to support the show is to go subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any more. Leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to it or share the episode with your community on Instagram or whatever social place you like to hang out. This helps get it into more people's ears, and I'm so grateful for your support, always. Thanks again for tuning in. Much love.